The cybersecurity field is growing faster than ever, but the number of unfilled cyber positions has also reached new heights. A new report on the cyber workforce includes some important findings for federal agencies and contractors. For more, Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday joins me. Justin, welcome to the program. Hey, Eric, how are you? I am well. So what are the findings from this latest report on the cyber workforce? Yeah, so this report was put out by the International Information System Security Certification Consortium, better known as ISC Squared. It found that the cybersecurity workforce has reached a record high, 5.5 million people. That's up 8.7% from 2022. But there's roughly 4 million more cybersecurity professionals needed worldwide. And that means the cybersecurity workforce gap has widened by about 12% from last year. So, you know, there's more professionals coming into the cybersecurity workforce, but there are even more that are needed to fill all the open job positionings. This study is based on a survey of about 14,800 cybersecurity professionals across the globe working in a diverse range of sectors, including the government and the military and military contracting industries. So there's some relevant findings here for, you know, your federal manager, policymaker, member of Congress, what have you, who are, who's looking at this, this hot topic of the cybersecurity workforce. And so what can the government do to make up for these shortfalls that are in both the public and private sector? Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting. The public sector actually uh, saw the fewest cyber layoffs per the uh, ISC squared report. But they also had the uh, most shortfalls. Seventy-eight uh, percent of respondents working in government said they had high staffing, uh, face staffing shortages, and seventy-six percent of those working in the military contracting sector faced staffing shortages. That's at the top of all sectors. And so the the report finds that there really is this need to develop new and innovative recruiting and retention programs especially in the federal sector, and that there's this need and this push really already underway to expand pathways into the cyber workforce. The report found that 80% of cybersecurity professionals agree there are more pathways into the cyber uh, field than ever before. Starting out in IT continues to be a major stepping stone. Uh, 52% of those surveyed said they started out in IT before pivoting to cybersecurity. But 45% said they learned about cybersecurity concepts outside of formal training, outside of, you know, doing a degree or a certification course. Uh, so that, that's a pretty remarkable finding. Nearly half of those in the field kind of did it on their own and, and, and found a way into the field. And only 31% say that they got a bachelor's degree in cybersecurity or a related field. So only one third, you know, went to school, which really lines up I went to school specifically for cybersecurity, which really lines up with this push we're seeing in government and parts of industry for skills-based hiring, as it's called, as opposed to focusing on degrees. Tara Wisniewski is Executive Vice President for Advocacy, Global Markets, and Member Engagement at ISC Squared. And she told me a little bit more about some of these big findings from the report. And what I think is particularly important about cyber is... The landscape and the technology change so fast that traditional workforce strategies are not going to be as effective. And so there really is, um, I, I think, a call for what can the federal government do to open up the talent pipeline it's Tara Wisniewski from ISC Squared. We're speaking with Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. So are any agencies going to start adopting new cyber hiring practices to help mitigate some of these shortfalls? 
Yeah, well, we've seen uh, a couple agencies over the past several years adopt kind of specialized cyber recruitment and retention programs. The Defense Department, of course, has its cyber accepted service that has many thousands that they've now recruited into that kind of specialized cyber program with higher pay, uh, you know, different recruiting and retention type policies compared to traditional fields. And then the Department of Homeland Security has its new cyber talent management system that launched in 2021. It's it's very similar to DOD's cyber accepted service. But other than that, there's really a patchwork of kind of authorities across the federal government. Many agencies don't have any specialized sort of cyber hiring authorities, so they have to get a little creative. The uh, White House earlier this summer released a cyber workforce and education strategy, and it really prioritizes the shift to skills-based hiring where you're doing sort of skills assessments of applicants who are looking at a federal cybersecurity position as opposed to the traditional, you know, degree requirements and self-assessments and things like that. That's early, early days, though. Congress is also in some quarters pushing the administration to kind of open up the aperture in terms of who's qualified for a cyber position. A, A bill called the MACE Act that passed in the House last month would actually require agencies to use only skills-based qualifications as opposed to degree-based qualifications for cybersecurity positions. So there's some movement, but as I said, it's early days. When you talk about human capital these days in any field, really, you have to talk about diversity. What was in the report about that? Yeah, the ISC Squared report included uh, actually found a link between skills-based hiring and diversity efforts, the success of diversity efforts. Organizations that used skills-based hiring have an average of 25.2% women in their workforces, which is, you know, relatively high for the cybersecurity field, as sad as it is to say, it's it's still very much lagging behind these days. And that compares to 22% for those who have not adopted those practices. So a 3% margin, but there, there's definitely a margin there. And one of the major goals of the White House's cyber workforce strategy is to strengthen the cyber workforce through greater diversity in inclusion. Uh, the, the theory is that if you can open it up to skills-based hiring, you can also get greater diversity and inclusion in your cyber programs. And, you know, that's something that the White House is looking at, something federal agencies are looking at. And so, you know, Wisniewski told me the face of cyber is really changing. More women are coming into the field, more diversity in terms of race, class, and gender, and just more diversity of people coming in from alternative routes other than, you know, the traditional pathway of a college degree or, you know, starting out in IT. So there's there's some movement there in the diversity front as well in this report. All right. And any other important trends across the cyber workforce that this report pointed out? Yeah. One interesting thing is, is that it shows this kind of burnout from the understaffing and all the stress that comes with working from cybersecurity might be having something of an effect Job satisfaction dipped slightly this year with 70% of respondents saying they are either very or somewhat satisfied with their jobs. That's down 4% from last year. Now, that's still 70%. That's still pretty high, but it is is a downturn for really the first time in these reports. And that shows that, you know, a lot of maybe the cutbacks that happened largely in the private sector in the cyber field over the last year due to, you know, the challenging economy and things like that. Uh, might have had an effect in addition to the traditional, you know, typical stress that comes with a cyber job. Uh, Wisniewski pointed out to me for, you know, federal agencies and policymakers that 
cyber requirements and regulations are also kind of on the rise. It's been a big priority of the Biden administration to set cyber standards. And just with all these cybersecurity incidents that are happening, there's this push to have more requirements in place across sectors. But Wisniewski argues that should come with a corresponding push to have some more cyber workforce uh, development because these requirements are actually increasing the demand for cyber employees. Here, here's what Wisniewski had to say about that. If there's going to be a move to legislate and regulate, there needs to be a lot more, I think, communication and focus on what that means and what that impact is. We would love to see, I think, whenever that comes out, there is also a stream of, you know, the commitment to building the workforce because we have to do something different. And again, that's Tara Wisniewski, Executive Vice President for Advocacy, Global Markets and Member Engagement at ISC Squared. All right. Well, Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday, thank you so much for filling us in. Thanks for having me. And you can find more of Justin's reporting and a link to this report at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or 
how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies. And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, 
I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, Mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus. Isn't that a great title? I just love the title Chief People Officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture And what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful? So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture. Because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth, and um, engagement programs and listening programs. That's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how how are things going, Um, because we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. 
neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about, can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years, yeah. um, and work alongside you. Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.